Uh, we're going to continue our study through 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And um, it was mentioned this morning already, but I did want to say uh, at, the, at the outset, there is a lot of turmoil going on, as I'm sure you've heard in Israel right now. Um, I think the last, last thing I heard was 600 dead and something along um, 2,000 injured. So there's a lot of death, there's a lot of mayhem, there's a lot of destruction. Um, and, you know, that's happened for a long time in Israel uh, now, but this seems to be something pretty substantial. So it should probably keep them in our prayers that justice would be done. Uh, you know, human peace treaties, they, they may last for a time, but what we really need is the Prince of Peace, of course, to come and subdue the hearts of men. So if we could pray for conversion uh, for both sides of that conflict and that death would cease, um, just keep that in your prayers. But we'll be in 2 Corinthians. We'll be in the first first uh, few verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to make note also of the Lord's providence in our arrival at this text. As I'm sure you've noticed, we've been talking about finances and giving a lot, especially with construction going on. And that can make us a little squeamish or uncomfortable sometimes, right, talking about finances. But in the kind providence of God, at the same time that the elders have felt the need to talk to us about these things, we've also arrived at this section of the New Testament, which really speaks more about generosity and giving and finances than perhaps any other section of the New Testament. So I'm going to do things in a little bit of a reversed order from how I normally introduce a text. I'm going to pray first before we read these verses that the Lord would use his word to convict us and reprove us in the precise areas of correction. So as we read this text, we can really think about what we need from the Lord. So if you will, stand with me to pray, and then we'll read our text. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you and thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ. We also thank you for this body of believers who are striving after obedience to you and your word. And we ask now, Lord, that you wouldn't give us a bur- or that you would give us rather a burden over our sins, that would you, you would use your word this morning like a refiner's fire to purge us of all things that cause us to fall short of the holiness that you require of your people. And please, Lord, use this text to spur us on to maturity in Christ, not only in our obedience, although we do ask for that, but in our knowledge of the one who has redeemed us. And please grant us now our petitions on the basis of your, of your son's shed blood. Amen. Let's read our text. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. These are the words of God. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great testing and by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and to us by the will of God. These are the words of God. You can be seated. Well, like I mentioned a moment ago, taking, uh, talking about finances and money at church, of course, can be a little off-putting. Part of that, I'm sure, is that no one wants to be in any way associated with the prosperity preachers that we see so often uh, malign the word of God. Uh, I can assure you, I stand to gain nothing financially from this message at all. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about that. Um, But to set the historical background of our text a little bit, Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the collections he's been gathering for the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was in a great deal of poverty for reasons ranging from bad political decisions to outright persecution. And Paul's answer to this problem is to gather financial help for these brothers from the uh, churches in the surrounding areas. He had told the Corinthians about this collection back in 1 Corinthians 16, 
But all the slander and mistreatment of Paul by the false teachers in Corinth seemed to have put a pause in his efforts to get the collection from them. Thus far in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul's been caught up in defending his apostolic ministry against the false teachers and rebellious church members. But it seems like we have a transition here in chapter 8. And in the last few verses of chapter 7, Paul is relieved that there seems to be a, a true and heartfelt repentance coming from the congregation. They had begun forsaking their sins and walking away from the falsity that they had been walking in. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, we have a, a shift in subject from most of what we've discussed thus far. Paul begins to speak to the church as if things are back to normal again. The false teachings had been handled for the most part, and Paul could get on with the important tasks of the ministry of the church. Although we will see him defend himself later in the book. But Paul reminds the Corinthians of the collection he's taking up in the church in Jerusalem, for the church in Jerusalem and encourages the Corinthians to be as generous in their giving as their sister church in Macedonia. Macedonia, by the way, uh, is that region in northern Greece. It encompasses like Philippi, uh, Berea, and Thessalonica. So that's kind of what we're thinking of when we hear these churches in Macedonia. There's a lot of giving and finances and the like in chapters 8 and 9 of this book, but today we're just going to cover the first several verses to get a good working definition and conceptualization of what it means to be generous. What is generosity? So what I really want to talk about today isn't giving money to your church per se. It's not that specific. We will talk about that indirectly. But more broadly, I want to focus on a virtue to pursue from our text and a sin to run far away from. Again, the virtue I'm speaking of is mentioned in verse 2 of our text, and that virtue is generosity. But before we get into the subject at hand, I want to make a point about preaching on uh, virtues and morals in general. And that's the difference between moralistic preaching and applicational preaching. Uh, you can see this a lot um, uh, talked about today, this, this idea of moralistic preaching, do-goodism, that kind of a thing. Both are concerned, uh, both moralistic preaching and applicational preaching are concerned with exhorting Christians to act like Christians, to act righteously, and that's good. But they are different in one important way. Moralistic sermons are pretty much describing what you need to do. They often describe to do uh, what you need to do very well, by the way. And then they say pretty much, one, two, three, go, right? Go out, pursue it, be virtuous. Um, And now a good applicational sermon also tells you what to do. It tells you how to be virtuous by the standard of God's word. But the difference is usually in what applicational sermons add. And that that addition, that emphasis really makes all the difference. The, The reason I'm getting into all of this is because I don't want you to hear me saying, be generous, one, two, three, go, right? That's not exactly what I'm getting at here. The goal isn't rigid obedience to a moral standard. The goal, as Doug Wilson puts it, is to learn to love the standard which is not a bullet-pointed list on a yellow legal pad. It's not just uh, commandments written out on a page of paper. No, the standard we're to come and love is we're to chase after this person, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ who is the standard. And I say all that to emphasize here at the beginning that moral do-goodism is not what we're after. We're after pursuing and pressing on to a knowledge, love, and into the image of the one who redeemed us from our sins. That's what we're after here. If we have the morality uh, to make Puritans blush and can solve all ethical quandaries by our astute knowledge of God's law, but have not love, love for the standard, then it's all for nothing, really. And with that in mind, let's broach the subject at hand. Uh, Generosity, I'm going to argue, has to do with freely and sacrificially giving to others what is rightfully yours for their benefit. I'll say it again. Freely and sacrificially giving to others what is rightly yours for their benefit. And I'll say it a couple more times throughout this if you didn't get that. The opposite of generosity would be a prideful hoarding, a a selfishly reserving everything for yourself. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about generosity, both implicitly and explicitly. In Acts 20, it says this, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. We hear that all the time, don't we? In Proverbs 22, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. And in Psalm 112, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. On top of that, of course, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan, who gave above and beyond his time and money to help a stranger in distress. And the poor widow in Luke 21, who is enshrined forever in Scripture as an example of generosity because she gave the Lord even in her poverty, gave to the Lord even in her poverty. And examples could be multiplied without end, but it's a trait we rarely heard talked, uh, hear talked about, or at least it's probably a trait if I were to ask you uh, what's a list of virtues you need to pursue, uh, give me the top ten virtues you really think you need to be striving after in your life. It might take you a while to remember even generosity, to put that on the list. We don't tend to uh, think about it as often as we should, but generosity is esteemed highly by God, and it's a powerful tool for building robust Christian communities that serve and honor Christ. There's a couple words in the definition that I gave I want to stress because the idea of generosity has become somewhat perverted in our popular understanding. The first thing to point out is that generosity has to do with giving freely, freely, or with a, a cheerful and willing disposition. Giving freely presupposes, of course, that you're holding on to everything that God has given you with an open hand. That you don't have, uh, that you don't value, rather, your time and possessions so much that you're unwilling to give away things that God has given to you for the good of others. I don't want you to think I'm speaking as a Gnostic here. It really is okay to enjoy the good things that God has given us. Has the Lord blessed you with a house, a nice house, in a safe neighborhood, with a nice white picket fence? Then all glory to God. Enjoy the house. That's not what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with enjoying good things in this world. But there's a big difference in enjoying the things God has given us and holding those things tight-fistedly, making them our treasure, things we aren't willing to give up if we're convinced it was the right thing to do. It's the rich, uh, rich young ruler kind of attitude that we're combating here. There's nothing wrong with being rich, I assure you. The problem that Jesus had with the rich young ruler was not that he was rich. It was that he loved his money more than righteousness. That was his problem. He would rather have his possessions than eternal life. What a trade-off. And so he held on to his money with a tight fist. And that's the exact opposite of the attitude Paul speaks of here. The opposite of freely giving as though you hold all your possessions with an open hand. We get that from two places in our text. The first example uh, is actually somewhat indirect, but it's found in verse 1. Paul says, Now, brothers, we make, to, uh, make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The free and generous grace of God given to the churches in Macedonia. We know God's grace comes to us freely and cheerfully from many scriptures, but just think about the concept of God giving grace to sinners in general. By its very definition, God's grace is free and unmerited. It's a benevolent, uh, excuse me, benevolent giving of himself to sinners who don't deserve him. The picture we have of God in the New Testament is not an old, stingy man in the sky who saves someone's, someone every once in a while, just maybe to get some good PR or something. Uh, no, the God has saved and will continue to save a countless multitude of unworthy sinners because he delights in showing grace and mercy, because he's glad to shower blessings on his children. And if we really believe in a God who gives that kind of grace with a true cheerfulness and joviality, then we should be compelled to follow after him in this regard. One pastor says that free grace makes free men, and if I can adapt that, it really should be generous grace given by God that makes us generous men. How could we cling tightly 
and be stingy with our possessions when we have an example of a God who has graciously given us all things in the gospel. But Paul says that the Macedonian churches were moved by God's generous grace to be uh, gracious in return, to be generous in return. Paul then says in verse 2 that in great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their generosity. Notice that their giving to the Jerusalem churches came from a heart of joy. They offered themselves freely and cheerfully. This wasn't a gift they offered begrudgingly because Paul was looking over their shoulder. They gave it freely. They gave it because they were happy to. They held everything so open-handedly that even when they were being persecuted and impoverished, they were still willing to give because they knew their brothers needed it. The affliction and testing Paul speaks of here is talking about the persecution that was going on in Macedonia by the hands of the Jews. We read about that in several places in the New Testament, especially in Acts and Thessalonians. Those saints in Macedonia were being pressed down, beaten, afflicted, some of them killed, most of them poor. And Paul says that even in that situation, they had a deep and abiding abundance of joy in Christ. If their hearts were tethered to the things of this world, there's no way they could have had such an abundance of joy, even in poverty and trial. So we really see them first accepting the gospel, embracing it by faith, finding their joy there, and that leads them uh, to be able to have a heart of generosity to those around them. We see them even in their poverty giving to the needs of the saints, which brings me to the next part of our definition of generosity I want to stress, and that's that generosity has to do with giving freely and sacrificially. We read in verse 3, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. That should be convicting, by the way. Not only did they give according to their ability, that is, they gave what they could afford to give, Paul says that some of them even gave beyond their ability. To be honest, I'm not even exactly sure what that means. How could you, be, how could you give beyond your ability? And Paul doesn't really stress, uh, stress it or get into much detail, but he's trying to make a point here. We can tell from what he says that it's a, a very powerful way of saying that the grace of God toward the saints in Macedonia had so impacted them, they were so grateful for the grace that was given to them in Christ that an extraordinary measure of generosity started to uh, foster among them and rise up among them. Please, they were saying, please let us share into the ministry of the saints. Look at verse 4. Paul says they were begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in ministry to the saints. When's the last time you begged and urged, please let me share in the ministry of the saints. Please let me be generous. How is that even possible? How is it possible to have that attitude of generosity? This urging and begging, please, Lord, let me be generous. Please let me share and partake in this ministry. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment. We all know this passage. Uh, We've read it a hundred times over. But perhaps we can collectively uh, ask the Spirit to help us truly embrace it by faith. Matthew chapter 6. And this is in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. Christ is speaking here. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. That's a command, by the way. Don't be worried about your life. It it seems like Christ is saying this in a gentle and warm tone, and I'm sure he is. But that is a command. Do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Is God really going to take care of birds and not his own children, is what Jesus is getting at here? Is he that negligent of a father? No, of course not. 
He goes on, And which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they uh, spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? And here's the first answer to how we can cultivate the same attitude of generosity that the Macedonians had. It comes in the form of a rebuke, really. Christ says, you of little faith. Do you trust the promises of God? Do you really trust him? Here's how you know you trust him. Christ says, don't worry. Then do not worry. If your life is riddled with anxiety and fear over these things, then perhaps you don't actually trust the promises of God. Don't you know that God's promises are certain? Don't you know that God's not a liar? Then here's the conclusion. According to Jesus, do not worry. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He knows. That, I'm almost certain, is why the Macedonians could give so sacrificially. Why they could give even more abundantly than their own ability. Again, I'm not exactly sure what that means. They weren't worried. They weren't anxious about whether the Lord would provide for them. Of course he would. He promises he would. And the second reason I think uh, that they could give so generously is in Matthew 6 as well. We stop just short of this verse. In verse 33, given what Paul says, I'm convinced this is probably the overarching reason why the Macedonians could give so freely. Christ says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's read that again. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. To give sacrificially, you do not have to be concerned with whether God will provide food and clothing for you, but you do have to be concerned with the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Not only would the Macedonians not have to be concerned about whether their giving would interfere with their basic needs, they had to be ultimately concerned that the church of Jesus Christ was being built and strengthened, that the kingdom was being built up. They saw the mission of the kingdom as more pressing than their own needs. Are we likewise concerned that the kingdom of God is being furthered in this world? Are we concerned with souls being saved and churches being strengthened? If that's not actually the primary thing we seek after in this life, of course it'll be hard to part with our possessions. If that's not your goal, if that's not what you're chasing after, then what are you chasing after? Probably yourself, right? Probably your own desires, probably your stuff, your comforts. And this is what we see them doing in verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, Paul said, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Paul was actually surprised at the level of their generosity. I didn't expect this, he says. But they had first committed themselves to the Lord and then to us, he says, which are the ministers, Paul the apostle and his ministers. In what ways are our lives aimed at the furtherance of the kingdom of God? Really think about that question. In what ways is your life aimed at the furtherance of the kingdom of God? What are the things you do week in and week out that actually accomplish the furtherance of the kingdom of God? It's not until Christ and his kingdom become the totalizing concern of your life that you'll be able to part with what you're holding on to in selfishness. And that gives us a, a practical answer to the question that so commonly comes up in our heads, something like this, why would I sacrifice my time for that, right? Why would I do that? Why would I give away my hard-earned money for that? Well, how about for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? Is that, is that a good enough reason? For the Macedonians, why would they be willing to give up what little they had left? Remember, they're impoverished, they're poor. Why would they be willing to give up what little they had left? Well, of course, they gave it up because the strengthening of the churches would aid in the growth of the kingdom of God. That's what they were concerned with. 
And the next phrase I want to emphasize uh, in our definition of generosity is what is rightfully yours. Remember what uh, we call generosity this. This is your definition again. Freely and sacrificially giving to others what is rightfully yours for their benefit. Freely and sacrificially giving to others what is rightfully yours for their benefit. Notice in our passage that Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians that they need to write a check for $10,000. That would be a little easier, probably. Write a check to $10,000, command from the apostle, go ahead and do it. He doesn't say that each person needs to pull out their wallet and give 20% of their last paycheck. And that's because that wouldn't exactly foster the spirit of generosity that he's looking for in the hearts of the Corinthians. It's easy to see that when we give other examples. Are you being generous when you pay your taxes? You say, oh, that's a, that's a generous man right there. He paid his taxes this past tax season. No, you should pay your taxes, and that's virtuous in and of itself for other reasons, but it's not generosity, right? Would we consider an employer who uh, pays his employees to be really generous? Man, he was really generous this week. He actually paid me. Like, no, we don't consider that generosity. He's contractually obligated to pay you. So it is virtuous for him to pay you, but it's not generous. And Paul's trying to foster a spirit of generosity, But this is actually the glory of generosity in the first place. We admire generous people because they're giving up what's rightfully yours. That's why it's so admirable. It's really theirs, and yet they give it up. The Macedonians earned the money they gave away. It was theirs to save, spend, give, do what they pleased with. And that's why Paul seems to be so pleasantly surprised when the saints gave above and beyond what they were capable of giving. Because they really were giving of what was theirs, what was rightfully theirs. And the last thing I want to point out in the definition is that you're to freely give to others what is rightfully yours for their benefit. And this clarification really does need to be made in our day because there's a certain mindset amongst especially more progressive Christians that one of the ultimate expressions of generosity looks like the giving of gifts of fellowship and affirmation and approval to people who openly practice all sorts of unrepentant sin. This past week, I'm sure you heard, um, Pastor Andy Stanley held a conference at his church to address issues of sexuality and gender and things along those lines. And the problem, I'm sure you can see the train coming here, is that he actually invited two homosexual men who claimed to be married to speak at this conference, to get up there and speak to his church. Not all his churchmen, but in all fairness to him, he did say, I don't think homosexuality is the biblical standard. Good, right? (laughs) That's the least we should expect from a pastor of his stature. But he did say that, right? I do not think that homosexuality is biblical. I don't think it is. And he said that the following Sunday at his church as well. It is against the biblical ideal, he says. But, he went on to say, that doesn't mean we shouldn't extend the arm of Christian fellowship to them, right? He said, we draw circles, not lines. That sounds really nice and loving and generous, doesn't it? We're not talking about the way, uh, by the way, about people who are broken over their sin, trying to figure out how to break its power in their lives. That would be a different situation. We're not just talking about people who have decided to live chaste lives but still struggle with sin. That's not what we're talking about. No, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a man who will stand before God for every idle word he spoke, before thousands of people, by the way, said we ought to be inclusive of men and women who are in open, blatant, unrepentant sin over which they show no shame or regret. Now, there are a lot of problems with that, but I'm actually pretty confident that he was probably trying to be kind and loving. I'm sure that was actually his intent. He probably was trying to be kind and loving. The problem is, among many things, if we want to believe what the Scripture says is kind and loving, if we want to believe what the Scriptures say about men and women who name the name of Christ and refuse to repent and turn away from their sin, then extending Christian fellowship to unrepentant sinners in the church is the last thing we should do, of course. This is normally... uh, 
This really is something, by the way, we need to nail down as a church because the tide is quickly changing in evangelical environments in this regard and how we deal with sin in the church and how we uh, deal with repentance or church discipline, things along those lines. Now, let me ask a question just to clarify what I'm saying here. Did Jesus, was he a friend of sinners? Yes, Jesus was a friend of sinners. True or false? Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He absolutely did. And we should not deny that. We cannot deny that. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Christ eating with the sexually immoral and what Stanley did, which I'm arguing against? Paul tells, tells us the answer in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this. If you want to turn there, sorry. 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. He says, don't associate with them. He said, I did not at all mean, by the way, the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters of the world, for then you'd have to go out of the world. You wouldn't be able to find anybody to hang out with, he says. But now I'm writing, he's clarifying here, now I'm writing to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's a sexually immoral person or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. And he says, not even to eat with such a one, let alone let them speak at your conference, right? Don't even eat with such a one. And I bring this up because, as I mentioned, generosity really is uh, a virtue that everybody's trying to pursue and no one knows what it looks like. (laughs) That's the problem. People really are trying to be loving and and, uh, generous. Uh, They're trying to be inclusive, all these words that we hear thrown around, and they have no idea what those words mean. And so we're trying to get a good definition so we can know how to act biblically. And I'm sure Stanley and his church really think they're doing the right thing by being generous in their extension of fellowship and time and counseling and resources to these individuals. Now, it's not mainly about money, but money's involved as well, right? It's a big conference. I'm sure a lot of money was involved in this as well. But to go back to our definition, generosity involves the giving, uh, involves giving for the benefit of someone else, for the benefit of others, and we don't get to autonomously decide what's best. We, we actually need to look at the Word of God for what's best for our neighbors. And in this case, we read clearly that what God thinks is best in the case of unrepentant sin Paul says, deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And that sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? Until you hear the end of his statement, so that he might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. If we truly care, if we truly care, if we really want to be generous, we really do have to do things for the benefit of others according to the word of God. And that's kind of the bait and switch that you're going to hear all the time from uh, really a, a rising tide in the church that's fine with being friendly with sin. That's really what it is. They're just fine with being friendly with sin. And we cannot stand for that. We can't. The church of Jesus Christ cannot stand with being friendly with sin, being friends of the world. We really have to put our foot down, not in a mean and hostile way. I'm not screaming right now, am I? I'm not screaming and yelling and pounding my feet. No, but in a loving way say, do you not, do you not understand? Do you not read what the word of God says about these things? You don't get to define love. You don't get to define generosity. God does. Jesus Christ does. Let's look at his words, right? Acting as if everything can just continue as normal while professing Christians rebel against God without any remorse is not what's best for them, I promise you, no matter how much of our modern society thinks it is. And so it doesn't reflect a spirit of generosity no matter how much it tries. And we recognize this naturally. Uh, Let's think about this example. Giving an opiate addict free range in your medicine cabinet. Is that generosity? No, of course not. You actually have to be actively seeking out and furthering the good of your neighbor for it truly to be generous, doing what's uh, giving to them for their good, for their good. But positively, we do see true generosity in the Macedonians working for the good of the impoverished churches in Jerusalem. 
So you see them giving sacrificially and freely for the benefit of the other as defined by God, right? And as defined by his messenger, Paul. But very practically, what does generosity look like in our daily lives? This is kind of all abstract, giving freely, giving sacrificially. What does it actually look like in our daily lives? How do we really cultivate a life of generosity beyond the one day a month we might send in our tithes to the church, right? What does it look like to actually be generous in day-to-day life? And maybe you don't have a lot of financial stability at the moment, but that's really irrelevant. Do you have the joy of the Lord? Do you have a home with laughter and love for one another? So be generous with that. If you can't afford a nice dinner, have some people over and serve up a lightly brown grilled cheese sandwich split four ways for the glory of God. And serve it and be happy and be joyous. And then as you and your guests sit down and feast upon the fatness of the land, laugh with them, sing with them, be joyous, give them what you have. For all the older saints here, follow the example of Titus too and be generous with the time you're willing to spend in discipling and training younger men and women here. Listen to Paul. This is eminently, eminently practical here. You want to know what to do. How do you be generous? Do this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious malicious or gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, but they're to teach what is good so they might instruct the young women in sensibility to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be slandered. So you don't have a lot of money. That's fine. Do you love your husband? Do you love your children? Do you have knowledge of how to love your husband and children well? Then give it away. Be generous with that. Uh, We all have the stereotype in our heads, I'm sure, of the mom who's just kind of constantly annoyed with her children, who just sticks the iPad in their face and shushes them every five minutes. Doesn't actually take time and care and generously give of her resources and time to foster virtue and righteousness in their children. Proverbs talks about a father winning his child's heart. Proverbs 23 says this, My son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. Give me your heart, son. You need to win the hearts of your children. And one of the key pieces in that puzzle is actually to be generous with them. If you're ungenerous and selfish, they're not going to give you their hearts. They're going to give you rebellion and sin, right? So be generous with them, especially with your time. I'll get real practical with it. Teach them how to cook. Like, do something. Do something with your children to instill in them virtue. Give them what you know. Give them what you have. Read them good books where good triumphs over evils. Fathers, wrestle with your boys. Build them toy swords. Do things for your children. Do things for those you love. And most importantly, don't think that your own me, me time, your own private time, is more important than giving your, the ch- your children the only news that can save them from an eternity in hell. Give them that. Do you have the gospel? Give them that. And we could go on ad nauseum. Of course, giving the gospel, that applies to all of us, not just parents. You have this gospel message, don't you? You have the message of reconciliation and forgiveness in Christ. How much do you hoard that? (laughs) How much do you keep that to yourself? When's the last time you preached the gospel to your neighbors, to those you love? Be generous with what you have. We could go on ad nauseum. There are countless ways to cultivate that kind of pattern of regular generosity in your life. But it has to come down to a willingness to freely and cheerfully sacrifice for those around you. To count others as more important than yourselves and then get to work. To look at the pattern set for us by Christ himself and then to follow hard after that pattern. So really, get practical with it. This week, write, write a list. Five ways I can be generous to those around me this week. You want practicality? There it is. And this was really just an overview of what generosity is in this sermon, so we can look in the coming weeks about how that applies in the particular situations that we see in the Corinthian church. But I hope this was encouraging. I know it's a short message. But let's pray over the text. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy you've given us in Christ Jesus. We praise you for this dear congregation of saints, people who are really trying to follow after you and follow your word. 
We pray, Lord, that if there are any secret sins being harbored amongst us, that they would be driven out of us, that we would be drawn to confession of our sins so we can find pardon and forgiveness in your Son. And we ask, Lord, that in whatever ways we're failing to be generous, not only to each other, but to those around us, you would, re- you would help us realize, help us recognize how important that virtue actually is, how important it actually is to be as generous as Jesus Christ. After all, you are conforming us into his image. So we pray, Lord, that you make us better image bearers of Christ each and every day as we pursue holiness and the fear of the Lord. And we ask it in your name. Amen.